Well, we, uh, I'm so thankful that we are able to gather back together, um, as many as, as are, are able to. Um, we are actually, uh, the coronavirus has kind of just thrown everything for a loop, so, um, so it's, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, let's just go with God's providence, go with the flow, and um, we're kind of, uh, I'm faced with the difficult task this morning of continuing um, part two of what I talked about two weeks, three weeks ago. So we're going to do a little bit more review than, than naturally we would, just to kind of get back into the framework of looking at our church covenant and, and, and this theme. Uh, here's another uh, weird coronavirus thing. How many times do you hear about church discipline uh, during the Christmas season? <laughs> but it's uh, nonetheless... Uh, We are looking at God's providence that we're looking at this right now on this specific Sunday, Um, and we're going to continue what I've entitled, We Are In This Together, A Look at Church Discipline. And uh, last week, I talked about several reasons why church discipline can be a difficult topic to talk about. And uh, just going through a few of these, many times in many churches, church discipline hasn't been handled well in the past. So there's kind of a, a bad experience in the past, so the tendency is to overreact and to say, I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and um, we're just, that's not going to be in our vocabulary. And, and, and it has to be because the Bible talks about it. A second reason is that we as independent creatures, many times we, we balk at the thought of accountability. You know, we, 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 by default, left to our own self nature, our own sin nature, we don't want to have accountability in our lives. So that word accountability, it, it, it can sometimes send shivers down our spine. And the word discipline sounds foreign to us, or maybe it brings up negative thoughts or feelings, maybe the way we were disciplined as children. Um, Whatever baggage, there can be baggage that comes with these terms. Uh, Many times uh, we talked about that we have a low view of the church, a low view of the place of the church in our lives. We sometimes think, well, the church and the, the people of the church, that's an extra add-on that I don't really need in the Christian life. So this concept of church discipline seems very foreign. And then the last uh, reason we discussed is that, again, many times we, we may come from a home where discipline was handled harshly. So we carry that abuse and mistrust over to the local church. But those are just sometimes some hurdles we need to get over, we need to acknowledge uh, when we're looking at this theme. And uh, uh, three weeks ago, we kind of gave a, I gave a definition of what church discipline, um, what it really is. And uh, the the definition that you have on the screen, church discipline is the removal of a person from the membership or the fellowship of the local church for that person's ultimate spiritual health and restoration, as well as the health and well-being, you could even include the mission, the testimony of the local church. 
So church discipline is not meant to be a destructive thing. It is actually, as we will talk about, it is meant to be something of health and restoration. In our membership covenant, we come to this bullet point, and this is kind of the theme where we, where we commit ourselves together to the accountability of each other. Let's read this together. We will take the initiative to pursue a brother or sister in Christ who is sinning, who has wronged us, or is in danger of abandoning the faith, hoping for restoration and reconciliation. Then it goes on, and we submit ourselves out of reverence to Christ to the accountability of this church for correction or church discipline as deemed necessary by the church and its leadership in accordance with the Scriptures. And that last phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, is important um, to remember that this isn't a man-made concept. This has been given to us uh, by Jesus himself. So therefore, even if it takes us down some, some difficult roads, um, we as churches and as a local church, we have to heed all of Scripture. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We started to look at this theme of church discipline by looking at the framework of church discipline we're going we're gonna to review that and continue under that theme. Then we're going to look at the purpose of church discipline. Uh, and next week, we're going we're gonna to look at the mindset that we're to have in this concept of church discipline. Uh, but we're going to review the framework of church discipline. We're going to finish that aspect out today. And then we'll see how far we will get when it comes to why do we practice church discipline? Why must we as a church? What's the purpose of it? So let's go to the Lord and let's ask for, for his help this morning. Father, as we come before your throne, Lord, during the Christmas season, this can seem like kind of an awkward topic to discuss. And, and uh, by admission, this is definitely a theme that we're discussing right now, uh, Lord, that was really by divine providence as we've uh, had to have some closings and have had to switch some things around. But Lord, I believe that you are a sovereign God of providence, and I think that you have this for us this morning for a purpose. So Lord, would you give us attentive hearts and minds? Lord, there may be even uh, many here this morning that will think of all that's been entailed in their week and some of the pressures they're carrying and the fears and the worries. And they may feel that this topic is so far from what they need. But Lord, again, we trust in your timing. We trust in the reality that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for teaching, instruction, doctrine, correction training in righteousness. So Lord, we, we bow the knee this morning, no matter what kind of thoughts or images may arise in our hearts concerning church discipline, we bow the knee to you today and, and confess to you that this is what we need for this hour. Lord, I ask that you would speak 
to people's hearts today, Lord, to my brothers and sisters, and just speak specifically to their situations, to their spiritual lives where they're at. Lord, I pray that you would use this uh, continued look at church discipline uh, to, to make an impact of healthiness in our local church. Lord, that we would be mindful that, that we give a stewardship, not only for our own spiritual lives, Lord, but for how well we are caring for those in our assembly, in our church body. Lord, would you work this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the framework of church discipline, you remember I mentioned, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, that it doesn't matter how many beautiful decorations you have in a house. It doesn't matter how pretty the house looks. It doesn't matter how, how the, the fancy furniture you have in the house or the valuable objects that you have in the house. If the framework of the house is faulty, there's a big problem. The framework of a house or a structure has to be sturdy. It has to be secure or else it doesn't matter what pictures you may hang on the wall or how you may fill that house. And the same is true when we come to our understanding of the church and the place of church discipline within the church. We have to have a proper framework to be able to understand it correctly. And to be able to put ourselves under the accountability of one another. And last week we looked at three crucial marks of the framework of church discipline. I'm just going to review these again because all of this builds on one another. So, so I, I just want, I want to remind you of these things after a three-week absence. Number one, the foundational framework of church discipline is we have to understand the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 we talked about. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, praise the Lord, is entirely a work of God. It is His grace. It is His gift. If we had anything to do with it, we would mess it up. It's not how good we are. It's not how we can earn anything before God. God lavishes His grace upon us. He gives us the free gift of salvation. Now, many times, we can as individuals, have the thought that anything outside of one's verbal profession of faith, anything outside of somebody simply saying, yeah, I'm saved, is simply a private matter up to them. So the, the thought can be, well, there really is no accountability. That's, uh, the Christian life is just a matter between God and that person. But when we understand the gospel, the very next verse, verse of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, verse 10, it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in other words, Jesus 
comes to us and he takes us where we are, but he never leaves us that way. You remember we talked three weeks ago that God, when the gospel grips our heart, the transforming work of the gospel begins to do a work. Now, it's not a work like this. As we all know in our Christian life, it's like this, isn't it? Up and down, up and down. But nonetheless, if the Spirit of God is living within us, Jesus, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he what? Disciplines. And there is a transforming work of the gospel that takes place. So to really understand the gospel, we have to understand that the gospel work of God is transforming our lives from the inside out. Not from the outside in. That's the raw, that's legalism. The inside out. So therefore, as we live together in Christian community, we have a responsibility to encourage one another and to spur one another on, not just to profess the gospel with our mouth, but to live the gospel out in our lives. Does that make sense? So we have to understand the gospel. The gospel, just as we were saved by faith in Jesus and repentance of our sins, every day of the Christian life is to be one of full dependence on Jesus and of continual repentance of sin. The Christian life is a life of daily faith and repentance. It's not that we somehow lose our salvation. It is that every day we are exercising that characteristic that only the Holy Spirit can produce in our hearts. Understanding the gospel is crucial to the framework of church discipline. So in other words, what that means is that as as a church body, we are not simply content to say, so-and-so, you're a believer, that's great, now you go on your way, and and even join our church and go on your way, and, and, you know, just let us know if you need anything. No, it's that we want to cultivate the work of the gospel in each other's hearts. And when it seems that a brother or a sister is starting to stray from the gospel, we're concerned about that. And we have a responsibility to pursue that brother or sister. Does that make sense? Understanding the gospel is crucial. But number two, we talked about a couple weeks ago, understanding the second key framework, discipleship. Understanding discipleship. Isn't that where the word discipline comes from? Discipleship? They go together. So uh, what is discipleship in the life of a Christian? Well, first of all, we talked about the fact that discipleship is the call of every Christian. So there's not a single Christian that can profess to be a follower of Jesus that says, I'm not called to be a disciple. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. In fact, uh, we looked a couple weeks ago at Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, everyone. What does that look like? 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then there's a promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So according to Matthew 28, and we could look at other passages, but, but we're not for sake of time, a disciple, according to the Bible, is a baptized believer who is learning and following Jesus in all the things that he has commanded. So what is the first step of one who professes to be a follower of Jesus? According to Matthew 28, it's that they are to publicly profess that faith through baptism. And in proclaiming their faith that I am a follower of Jesus and I'm proclaiming this to the church, they are joining hands with the church body and they are saying, I want to walk in the newness of life that Jesus has given me. I want to have a life that's characteristic of observing the things that Jesus has commanded. And we're not talking here just about empty rules. Do this, don't do that, do that, don't do that. We are talking about obedience to Jesus in in response to the beautiful gospel work that he's doing in our hearts. We're not talking about following the commands of Jesus in order for him to love us, but because he does love us. That's the mark of a disciple. A mark of a disciple is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to profess your faith outwardly, and then from there, from obeying Jesus' first command to be baptized, to observe everything else that he has commanded. The Lord's Supper, the, the, the second ordinance of the church, and everything else in, uh, that's written in the scriptures. It's baptism, marking your faith, and then it's continued participation as a Christian through the Lord's Supper and through obedience to Christ, in all that he's commanded in the context of a local church. That is what it looks like to be a disciple. In fact, Jesus has made it pretty easy for us to understand what discipleship and being a disciple looks like. No Christian gets saved and has to think, what do I do next? No, it's very clear. Profess your faith through baptism and walk with the people of God Observing all that he's commanded, knowing the scriptures and learning. So discipleship, we know what a disciple is, a baptized believer who is learning and following Jesus imperfectly in the things he's commanded. And what is discipleship then? Discipleship is mutual encouragement and accountability to follow Christ in all that he has commanded. That's not rocket science, is it? So discipleship is seeking to, be, to, to come along a brother or a sister so that these things can be true in their life. That we come along a new Christian and explain to them the importance of baptism, why it's, why it's, it's needed. 
and then to come alongside them in their learning of the Scriptures so that they too will be able to observe what the Scriptures say. You can't follow what you do not know. Discipleship is really crucial to the local church. There's, uh, we see also that, that discipleship is the call of every Christian. We see that in Matthew 28. But we also looked at uh, a couple weeks ago that discipleship takes on different forms. There's two terms that I gave you a couple weeks ago. I keep saying that phrase, couple weeks ago. I'll try to vary it. Three weeks ago. We talked about formative uh, discipleship or formative discipline and then we talked about corrective discipline formative discipline is exactly what it sounds like you're forming something kind of like a potter that's forming clay he's shaping it it's 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 pliable he's making it into an a certain object with a certain shape Formative discipleship or discipline, it's simply training and instruction for growth and godliness. Coming alongside somebody, seeking to put into their lives the proper foundation in which to live the Christian life. How many of you have somebody in your life that, that either in the present moment or looking back, you can say, praise the Lord, I had a, 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 a man, a woman that discipled me as a Christian. How many of you can say that, that you've had that in your life? How, how valuable was that to you, especially as you are, were a new believer? Was it pretty valuable? I would say it's priceless. I mean, we as a church body need, really need to ask ourselves, am I taking anyone under my wing to seek to instill truth in them? Especially in the context of spiritual truth, giving spiritual counsel, asking some spiritual questions to them. Is there anyone like that that, that you are, are speaking into in their lives? Maybe it's not even formal sit-down going through a study, but even calling up on the phone and asking maybe even some hard spiritual questions. Making sure that they're in the Word, that, that, that they're, they're growing in their understanding of the Word and, and how that's lived out in their life. Man, that, that's the power of the local church when everyone can say, yes, I have people like that, and people are, are, are touching base with me in that way. That's what we're called to do as, as brothers and sisters, as a church family. But the other type of discipleship or discipline is not just formative discipline, but corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is sometimes correcting individuals of sin for the purpose, again, of growth and godliness. Did I have you turn in a passage of Scripture yet? Um, if you want to turn to Matthew 18, and then uh, stick something in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, Matthew 18 is found, if you're using a pew Bible, on page 823, and 1 Corinthians 5 is found on page 954 to the back of your Bible in the New Testament. So 
So notice that whatever discipleship is going on, it's for the purpose of growth and godliness. So having to sometimes approach a brother or a sister, hey, what's going on in your life? I'm noticing something. Hey, I'm noticing maybe a pattern or a characteristic. I'm concerned. That is not to be nosy. To stick your nose in someone else's business, remember, having a proper understanding of the gospel helps with that. That we are are, are, are to walk together to, to help one another, that the gospel is taking root in our hearts and transforming us. It's not simply a, I prayed a prayer, uh, now I'm going to walk on my own. So it, uh, it 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 is... at times, correcting of sin for the purpose of growth and godliness. Now, these things should be happening all the time in our lives. If you have a healthy marriage, isn't that happening pretty consistently in your marriage? That you're encouraging each other in your marriage, and sometimes you're having to bring up hard things that, hey, you know, I've been hurt by this. Hey, you're doing this. You're too addicted to your phone. Um, you're not paying attention to the kids. We're not spending proper time together. Our communication has been off. Um, when we stop doing those things as a couple, what happens? The marriage begins to deteriorate. Same thing in the church. When we stop or don't interact with each other like that, the health of the church begins to deteriorate. Maybe this is this morning a wake-up call even to us if, if God has called you into a marriage relationship that maybe you've let things slide and you need some formative discussions and some corrective discussions in your marriage even this afternoon. So we have to understand that discipleship is an everyday part of the Christian life. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you're a pastor and it doesn't matter if you are anybody else. We all need discipleship and accountability. There are so many stories of pastors that that there's no accountability in their lives, and even the church assumes that, well, the pastor's above us, so he doesn't need any accountability, and then those pastors fall into sin, and everybody's shocked, but even a pastor is a human. He's no different than anybody else. We all need this in our lives. We cannot trust ourselves to do what God has designed his body to do. That is why we need the local church. So that leads us to the third mark or framework of the local church. And that is, or the third mark of understanding church discipline is we have to understand the nature of the church. So we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand discipleship. We need to understand the local church. What's the local church all about? Now, 
I didn't have you turn to this passage, just, uh, I had you turn to it three weeks ago, just listen as, as I flip there in Acts chapter 2, if you're there and want to follow on, that's fine. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, it says, so those who received his word were baptized. There we have the, the, the theme of Matthew 28, reception of the word and baptism. And they, um, uh, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? They were added to the Jerusalem church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, again, we see baptism in verse 41, and then in verse 42, the breaking of bread most likely refers not just to eating meals together, but specifically to sharing in the Lord's Supper together. So as marked baptized believers, they then partook of the Lord's Supper as they gathered together. They partook of understanding the scriptures and teaching, and they prayed together. Those are the crucial elements that comprise the local church. The, the practicing of baptism in the Lord's Supper, the study of scriptures, and praying together. Without those elements, you do not have a local church. So we see from, from Acts 2, and we could also go other places, but for sake of time, we see in Acts 2 that the church recognizes those who are followers of Jesus. In verse 41, it says, those who receive the word, they were publicly baptized, and then they were added to the church. So, so uh, disciples... Discipleship and growth is to take place in and through the local church. That doesn't mean it is the only place that discipleship takes place in. I have several friends that go to other churches. How many of you have friends that go to other churches? And you're able to speak truth into their life and encourage them and even approach them um, if, if things seem like there's sin there and you're concerned. We need that, but there is something special about the church body to which you have committed to. And we're talking here specifically formal commitment through church membership. When one becomes a member of the local church, they say either at this church or another church, I am marked by baptism, I've received the word, I've been baptized, and I want to be added to this church. So the two markers of a church member is confession of faith and baptism. And then verse 42, we see their, their, their Christian walk in Acts. It says they devoted themselves to teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship, and prayers. Their commitment there, walking alongside one another, was one of devotion. So to understand this concept that growth and discipleship takes place in and through the local church, and, and again, bear with me um, if, if this is all very familiar to you because we talked about it three weeks ago. Uh, again, we need to talk about this to build on concepts. Um, you're in Matthew 18. 
we see from the Bible that the church is given the authority to discern spiritual matters. That is why growth and discipleship takes place in and through the local church. Not only does the church recognize those who are followers of Jesus, how do we recognize those? From their testimony and their baptism. That is why um, we have individuals, we have what's called membership interviews. They go through Discover CBC class. We listen to their testimony to see that, uh, our leaders, to see if it, if it agrees with Scripture. And, and one of the things that we're um, further uh, wanting to implement is that, that the individual shares their testimony before baptism, whether that's they read it or, or we read it for them so that the church body can hear the te- their confession of faith. And the church is able to discern, you know what, based on that profession of faith, that coincides with Scripture, we as the local church, we put our amen to what they have proclaimed. It agrees with Scripture. Did you know that Jesus gave the church that authority? We talked in Matthew 16, And if you're there, just look over a page or two. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Who do you say that I am? And verse 16, Simon replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's true, right? Jesus is the promised Messiah. Other people say he's a prophet, but Peter says, No, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And in verse 17, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that's a confusing concept, and we talked about that uh, when, we, when we looked at this before we had to break for, for those weeks. It's not saying that somehow Peter has a magical power. No, it's saying, Jesus says, Peter, just as you have rightly proclaimed who I am, you are going to be given authority as you proclaim the truth of the gospel to the world. And I'm going to build my church based on your ministry and your profession as you proclaim the gospel. And when you, you, uh, when you proclaim the gospel and people respond properly to the gospel, they place their faith in Jesus they, as the true Messiah, they turn from their sins. When you proclaim them a believer, when they are, are baptized, and as they are walking in the local church as a believer, your profession or your, your stamp on this is characteristic of what the Bible says is true of a Christian, that is likewise true in heaven. Now you say, may say, Pastor Adam, how is that significant to me? I'm not Peter. Well, now if you jump over to Matthew 18, in the context of not only individual matters, but church matters, let's just read verse 15. Jesus says to us, 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your what? Brother or sister. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a what? What is it? Gentile. I only got one good ear. And a tax collector. In other words, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here is, as there are matters of sin, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, as there are matters of sin that come, you're not saying, oh, judgmentally, that person's not a believer. Oh, that person's obviously not a believer. We're, we're not being, no one's being to be judgmental um, and, and just lashing out quick judgments on people. You're going to, 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 to have a restored brother or sister. But as there is a life that, that is not, no longer characterized by repentance, like we talked about earlier, and they don't heed any of what their brothers or sisters in the context here of the local church are, are trying to, to help them and trying to, uh, to show concern. As they slough that off, no longer are they living a life characteristic as a believer. And as that continues, the only thing left that the church has to do is to say, based on actions... We can't see the heart, but based on actions, this person is living characterized by the life of an unbeliever, a Gentile, one who's outside of the people of faith. That is not judgmental. That is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a very agonizing place for both the leadership of the church and the church body to have to come to. And then we, it says in verse 18, the same exact wording that Jesus said of, of Peter, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see, there's that same authority of rightly proclaiming the gospel and making sure that our profession of faith, both in mouth and in life, align with the gospel, the same authority that God gave Peter to start the local church, God has given the people of the local church. Not one dictator or two or three people, but the local church that based upon God's word and based upon this continuing characteristic that we are seeking to address, there's a disconnect between profession and reality. And we hope that by lovingly having to remove them from the membership of the church body, they will see the wickedness of their ways and repent and come back. Why? Because if they truly are believers, 
the Holy Spirit will not let them go. But if they are not believers, then they will continue to go on their own way. So we see here that there is, the church is given authority to discern spiritual matters, and that is a very weighty matter. In other words, another way of saying this is the church as a whole, the membership of the church, exercise discernment regarding the evidence of faith and repentance. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that there's a discrepancy between God's word and what is going on. So that leads us as we start to wind things down this morning, to continue now, this is, this is new stuff, so that was a long review like I warned you about. But we're still not going to go late, okay? Church, if church discipleship, growth and discipleship takes place in the local church that we should be having, we should be growing where God has put us as a local church, we have to also see based on as we've read in Matthew 18, church discipline takes place within the local church. You may ask, who among the local church does church discipline take place with? Well, according to the scriptures, it, it, it seems to be among those who have consciously united themselves to the local church. And that is through a church membership, through, through baptism and, and joining the local church. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, we're not going to turn there yet, but let me just read this to you. Listen, it says, Let him who has done this, an issue regarding immorality, it says, be removed from among you. Removed from among the context of those who are a part of the local church. Through our church membership covenant, which we have looked at in this series, um, there are individuals who say, I have been baptized, I'm a believer, I've, I've made that profession, I have that outward mark on my life of, of baptism, and I want to join hand in hand with this church to both keep the, the people of this church accountable and for them to, 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 to walk alongside me. There is that understanding that takes place, and there is that level of accountability. That is different than maybe someone who periodically just attends the church or one who, who attends but never says, uh, I want to join this church in the accountability that it provides. But 1 Corinthians 5.2, let him be removed from among you. The local church really has two spheres of accountability. The first sphere of accountability is the spiritual oversight that God gives us for our safety and health, spiritual health through the leadership of the local church. In other words, the pastors, 
the, the elders. In our current context, the, the pastors and deacons. And, and we're continuing to, to look at, at, at having elders and using the terms that the Bible describes. God has given spiritual leaders for our health. You may say, Pastor Adam, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, there's a really important verse in Hebrews 13, 17, and it can be abused or manipulated, but that doesn't mean that the verse shouldn't be in the Bible. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let me tell you, that is a very weighty matter for spiritual leaders as those who will have to give an account. In other words, you know, that means that sometimes it may be easier to look the other way on certain things and just kind of promote a false peace within the body. But man, then it's like, guess, guess who I'm ulti- we're ultimately giving account to? It's the Lord. That's weighty. It says, and it says then to, to the church, the members of the church, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. In other words, people a lot of times look at Hebrews 13, 17 in a negative way, and maybe that's because leaders in the past have abused this. But it is of the advantage to the church that God would give them leaders to have spiritual authority in their lives. And we're not talking about spiritual authority telling you what to wear in the morning and all of these details in your lives that are of no ultimate spiritual significance. We're talking about matters of spiritual weight. Keeping watch over your souls. The reason why this, this verse cannot be abused is because spiritual leaders will give an account for how they had spiritual oversight over Jesus' flock, whether it was done in dependence on the Lord and in love and in carefulness, or if it was abused saying, you listen to me no matter what you think, or even if it, more importantly, even if it doesn't agree with Scripture, you just listen to me. God has given spiritual oversight through the leadership of the church. That's the first sphere of accountability. But there's another level of accountability that God has given us, and that's spiritual accountability among the members, among each other. See, a lot of times we can say, well, you know what? I've heard that this person is struggling. I've heard that this person is maybe involved in this or they seem to be going down the wrong path. Well, I'll let the spiritual leaders worry about that. Well, Matthew 18 says, if there's a brother in offense, that you go to them. It's not just the spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders do have to, to administrate when church discipline is, is, is needed and brings that before the church, but we're talking about everyday discipleship here. There is spiritual accountability amongst the membership. 
In fact, Galatians chapter 6 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do we have that on the overhead? We don't. I should have. That's Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, it doesn't say just the church leadership, just the elders, just the pastors, just the deacons. You who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, uh, many times, the members of the church are in a better place to do initial accountability than sometimes even the spiritual leadership because sometimes people even have a, a, a wariness about, whoa, that somehow this person is really important and, and, and it's a bigger deal. Uh, it, so there is a, a weightiness that we all have, a seriousness that, that we all will give an account. Pastors and leaders will give a higher level of accountability, but we will all give an account for how we have walked together in the faith. You see, church discipline, whether that is just on an individual level and it gets taken care of, or it has to be brought before the church in a public way, it takes place within the local church among the leadership and the members. But then number three, as we understand the nature of the church. We saw that growth and discipleship takes place in and through the local church. Church discipline takes place within the local church. And number three, and we'll be done this morning, when does church discipline happen and have to be brought before the church? When a local church can no longer place validation on one's profession of faith, as evidenced in their actions, church discipline is necessary. Remember that idea, the keys of the kingdom that, that, that Jesus referred to in Matthew 18. When one professes their baptism and gives their testimony, even if that person was baptized at another church and they're coming in and they're saying, I, I already publicly declared that I'm a disciple of Jesus, but here's my testimony and the church body says, we take you into our membership. We want to walk alongside you. That commitment is real. And when through accountability, when through follow-up, there is no longer that that heart of, that's characteristic of a life of dependence, of faith, and of repentance. The most loving thing that the local church can do because of the accountability we've been given is to say things are not right. There seems to no longer be this, this lifestyle characteristic of a Christian And therefore, we can't continue to act as if nothing's wrong. We do have to remove them from membership in hopes of repentance. 
Now, many times the question comes, well, what types of sins then bring about church discipline? Because we all struggle with sin, don't we? And they're all are parts of our life that we're ashamed of. And that goes from Pastor Adam Pereira and Pastor Dennis Rue to anyone else sitting here. We struggle with sin. And what we have to come down to is the, the, the answer to that question is not necessarily giving some list of sins that, oh, if these things happen, they're brought before the church. But if these things happen, well, those are minor things that they're not really that important. The guiding principle based on Matthew 18, based on the discipleship and the accountability that is to take place within the local church, is that when, when a life is going down a road and there is no desire to hear any truth from the brothers and sisters to which they've committed, and that life is no longer characteristic of a believer, the church has no choice but to remove them from membership. We see here that it's not a legalistic list of sins it is a heart matter. But I do want to give you three heart matters that help guide in this context of church discipline and when it's necessary. Number one, as I just said, there's a heart of continual unrepentance. This doesn't just have to be public open sin. We're going to see next week that the Bible does address very different situations that we see clearly in Scripture where church discipline had to happen. But it is, again, it is not a list. It is, it is a matter of there's a heart of continual unrepentance. This person is no longer responding as a believer would. The second aspect is that there is a life-characterizing sin. Jonathan Lehman, who, again, I, I, I mentioned this book to you. He wrote this little book, Church Discipline. It's very helpful. In fact, I used it here in, in, in preparation um, for the sermon as well. I would encourage you to get it um, and, and to read that. Another really good book is The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung, speaking about the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for us, and then we live in response to what Jesus has done for us. The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. But there's a life-characterizing sin. Jonathan Lehman says this, formal church discipline should occur with sins that are outward, serious, and unrepentant. Now again, these cannot be boiled down to here's eight sins that require church discipline. Listen, somebody can be caught in the act of adultery, of being unfaithful to their spouse. 
and they are confronted with that, and they repent of that, that is the mark of a believer, and, and praise God, restoration is happening. It is not some legalistic thing of, oh, this happened, they're out. That's a wrong misconception of church discipline. just want to take what he said, formal church discipline, which should occur with sins that are outward, serious, and unrepentant. Break that down. What, what, what do we mean by outward? Outward sins doesn't necessarily mean public sins in that, that everybody knows about it, although that can occur, and the, the, the testimony of Christ is affected, but it means that it's outward in the fact that it's really happening. That it's not hearsay. It's not a rumor. It's not just, well, maybe. No, this is actually happening. Listen, somebody can be beating their wife in private. And we can't say, well, that sin is not open, so let's let's just sweep that under the rug. No, that is a life characterizing sin and it's unrepented of and if it continues to be unrepented of has to be brought before the church for removal from membership in hopes of restoration it's not necessarily public but things that are happening that is what outward means also these sins are serious in other words they're not being nitpicky For instance, someone can struggle with not telling the truth. And, and maybe they, they say something, they, they, they tend to exaggerate stories. And everybody knows it. You know, that person, he went golfing, he got 18 hole-in-ones. There's 18 rounds of golf, right? Get that? And yes, you know, a, a, a brother or a sister who is friends with that person should, you know, say to them, hey, you know, everybody knows you're exaggerating and that's not really showing good on your character. But then there's the guy that's continually cheating on his tax returns. And he's living a life that is not characteristic of a believer and is not willing to repent of that. We're not talking about nitpicky sins. We are talking about using the discernment that God has given his church to be serious about the gospel and then outward serious and unrepentant. We already talked about unrepentant, but again, this has the idea of being confronted Yet, there is a heart of an unbeliever that's exposed to that sin. An unwillingness to turn. Lastly, Church discipline takes place in the local church when there's a heart of continual unrepentance. There's a a life-characterizing sin, and we'll talk more about that next week. But thirdly, there's an inability of the church to exercise spiritual oversight and accountability in one's life. Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, you know that that verse, it's in our, our membership covenant, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but exhorting, encouraging one another. There are individuals that simply many times stop coming. You, uh, there's follow-up that tries that, that's attempted to be made, and, and there's, there's, there's no desire to continue um, in, in consistent fellowship with the body, so therefore the church body at times and the leadership has to bring before the members of the church, this person is not coming. There's been people that have tried to pursue them. There's no desire to come. We have to remove them from the membership. We don't have the ability to walk alongside them like we've committed to as members in this church. Those are three guiding characteristics of when church discipline is necessary. And this morning as we conclude and our time is done, I pray that this, as we look at this, would not be a sermon of intimidation. I pray that this would be a sermon of encouragement that we as a local church are to be a family. We are to be here for one another's spiritual good. I know I have brothers and sisters that I can fall back on here in this church. I know that if I just start straying from the faith that I'm going to have people pursuing me. Man, what a blessing. A lot of churches don't have that. But I also hope that it spurs within you and me an understanding that, wow, being a part of this body, it really is developing relationships with one another and being able to speak truth in people's life. To know that, that there's a stewardship of accountability given to me for the fellow members of this church. Not that I answer for their decisions, but that I can play a part in their spiritual life, and, and, and even restoration at times. May we be encouraged with this truth.